have love for one another. This is the gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Jesus Christ. Would you please be seated? It gives me great privilege uh, to welcome uh, John Bell, a member of the Wild Goose Resource Group and from the Iona community to uh, share with us on Psalm 148 today. Friends, I don't normally preach so early in the morning, but then I'm not in Australia every Sunday, and it's a great pleasure to be here with you. The Psalms normally are what we do as a kind of intermission between the Old Testament and the epistles. We don't very often preach on them, but these, this Sunday and last Sunday, I decided to do this because these nuggets of poetry, some very long, some very short, are there for our spiritual edification. And Psalm 148 is a very interesting psalm because it speaks of how worship is offered to God in three distinctly different places. It begins by talking about the worship in heaven. Now, heaven is an entity about which we don't have very many pictures. Jesus speaks of heaven, but not always in very graphic terms. And I think sometimes we're left imagining, particularly if you're of my vintage, that heaven is a place for little children who walk about dressed in white through green fields hand in hand with Jesus. Children's hymns of the Victorian era, which were sung until the late 20th century, gave that kind of picture. And I remember when my father died thinking, I cannot imagine him in a white nightgown. (laughs) So this picture doesn't fit. But we get glimpses of it from different places of what heaven is like. One of the things that Jesus says clearly is that in heaven there is neither male nor female. So all the gender and sexuality debates in the church may rage on earth, but when we get to heaven, these things are all past. Though I'm surprised that, you know, if the church is in any way an intimation of heaven, that it's taken so long for churches to see women as being co-equal with men in all respects. And then we have this uh, image of heaven that it's a place which Jesus also alludes to at the end of his ministry, just before he ascends, before he goes to the cross, he speaks on the Thursday in which he celebrates what we call the Last Supper, of there being a place where, which he will prepare for us, where he will again share with us round a table. And I find this very interesting because that image of sharing at a table percolates all the way through the Bible. We begin with Abraham and Sarah, Abraham feeding angels and so engaging with God. Isaiah talking about a heavenly mountain on which there's great food and great wine. And Revelation at the end of the Bible speaks of the wedding feast of the Lamb. And it's a very consoling picture to think that heaven is a place where there is great food and you'll never get fat and great wine and you'll never get drunk and you're never far from the proximity of Jesus. And Psalm 148 uh, says quite clearly that heaven is also a place of song. And it's a place where angels sing. For people in Britain, the song which the angels sing 
particularly in September, at the end of a series of concerts in the Royal, Royal Albert Hall, is not perhaps what the Bible suggests, because all through Britain on that Saturday night, people tune in on the radio or television to hear a very prestigious soprano proclaiming that when Britain first rose from the Asia main, now I don't know if that's actually correct in terms of oceanography, but guardian angels were singing the strain, rule Britannia, Britannia. Actually, it's the Sanctus that they're singing. At least that's what Isaiah heard, and that's what is alluded to in Psalm 148, that the angels surround heaven and bathe it with song. And when we in the Eucharist sing or say the Sanctus, we are joining our song to the song of the church in heaven. We are having a foretaste of the heavenly banquet. Well, the first section of Psalm 148 deals with the voice of praise in heaven. The last section, I'm missing out the middle one for a moment, the last hymn talks about the voice of praise in earth. And it's very egalitarian. Everyone is brought in, kings and commoners, people who are uh, exalted and people who are very humble. It's an egalitarian thing. Everyone has to be involved in the song of praise of God. It's quite sad that so many people feel eliminated. I don't, I'll not do it here, but in other places where I'm dealing with church music, I sometimes ask people how many can't sing. And usually one in four will say, I can't sing. And when I ask, why can't you sing? One in four will say, because somebody told me. I was told twice, I had a double dose of it. When I was 11, Miss Morton said, John Bell, will you mind please? And when I was, when I was 17, in front of the school choir, boys who I played rugby with and girls who I danced with, Thomas C. Aiken, who lives somewhere in Queensland now, pointed his finger at me and said, Bell, you can't sing. And so for probably about 12 years, I reckon that my voice was useless because somebody had determined that it was not a good vehicle for song. And then when I was 30, I thought, the guy who told me this was 28, why should I be bullied by somebody who's younger than me? <laughs> and and the, the church, in its uh, ability to encourage people to sing, invites them to do what no other society does. You know, if you join a tennis club, they don't say, can you sing? <laughs> if you join a deep sea diving club, they probably say, please don't sing when you're under the water. <laughs> But we invite everyone to sing, and all are invited. And it's great for me when people of different nations who are in the one place, a bit like Peter seeing the blanket come down from heaven and all those who, all those, uh, who were never considered to be worthy of God uh, are actually part of the deal. People from the outside, people who, are, who sing with their fingers, Down syndrome children, who make a joyful noise to the Lord, even if it's not the tune which the church is using. This is part of God's great pattern, this diversity of praise, and it's the church on earth which offers it. But the section which I've omitted is a section which has fascinated me for a while. It's a section which, among other things, talks about what well, we said these words, 
Praise the Lord from the earth. Praise him, you sea monsters and all deeps. Fire and hail, mist and snow, storm wind fulfilling his command. Mountains and all hills, fruit trees and all cedars, beasts of the wild, wild and all cattle, creeping things and winged birds. Somewhere between the song of heaven and the song of the people in the church is the song of the earth. And all through the Bible, we find, and particularly in the Psalms, but not only in the Psalms, we find what for some people are rather weird things. You know, the trees of the field shall clap their hands, or the valleys are so full of corn that they laugh and sing, or the hills skip like lambs and the little hills like rams. Now, if I had begun this morning by saying, friends, when I looked out the window of the house in which I was living, I looked to the hills and I saw them skipping like rams. You may want to see, and exactly what had you been ingesting before you saw this rather unusual phenomenon? And we can dismiss it by thinking that this is just weird poetic language which has nothing at all to do with us, and oh, how mistaken we would be. Because before God made humanity, before human beings ever uttered the name of God or raised a sound, let alone a song, the earth, according to Scripture, was praising its maker. God stands in a very distinct relationship to the earth. It's almost a kind of I-thou, I-you relationship. The world, as Gerald Manley Hopkins in a poem said, is full of the grandeur of God. And it's, it's an entity this praise of the world, which sometimes, sometimes we glimpse. Sometimes we are moved, like a man who I once met in Bradwell-on-Sea. Bradwell-on-Sea is in Essex, which, if you know England at all, is a county more famed for commuter traffic, people traveling in to London and back at night. But on the very fringes of Bradwell-on-Sea, there is an ancient Celtic site. It's a chapel from probably the 8th or 9th century. Once every three years there's a pilgrimage there of Anglicans, Roman Catholics and people from the Reformed and Methodist churches. And one year I was asked to preach at this pilgrimage. So there's a big crowd, two or three thousand people, all walked out to this promontory and gathered in marquees and in the open air beside the old chapel. There was a, I was staying overnight in the small village and there were only two places of public meeting. One was the post office, the other was the pub. Well, the post office was shut. So <laughs> I found myself in the pub and along comes a man who speaks to me. Uh, he says, I think I recognize you. I said, oh, do you? He said, yes, you were preaching at that event. I said, I was, were you there? No, he said, well, yes and no. He said, I'm not a Christian. I don't believe in anything like that. I always walk my dog around that area and I forgot the pilgrimage was on, but I kept walking and I saw you and now I recognize your accent. So it was you. I said, yeah, it was. We had a very interesting conversation. This man who was a joiner, who was temporarily uh, out of work through an industrial accident. And at the end of the conversation, as he was about to, to leave, he says, I think I should say something to you. I said, on you go. He said, well, it's just that sometimes I go out with my dog and sit. I don't go into that chapel. I sit outside it. And I don't know whether it is the way in which the sun breaks through the clouds and there's these shafts of light. I don't know whether it's the way that the ducks just 
glide down and then suddenly rise up out of the water. I don't know whether it's the way in which the wind moans in the reeds at the side of the sea. But despite all my atheism, I think there's something there. Now, I could have said, oh, you're communing with your maker and you don't know it. He probably would have punched me in the nose for that rather predictable comment. I didn't say anything. But later I realized what was happening. He was present when nature was worshiping God and he was moved to the core. In the same way as people whose preferred music is not Palestrina or Monteverdi or anything before the 20th century, might sneak into the back of a cathedral and hear a cathedral choir offering its praise to God. And even though they don't understand the music, they're moved by the integrity and the intention of it. Now, in Scotland, we had a much more profound insight into this through a bit of a shock, which was that around 10 years ago, a multinational mining conglomerate decided that they would like, if given permission, to take down a mountain on the island of Harris to make aggregate stones for road building in Europe. And after they had felled the mountain, they were going to dig a quarry, which would be the biggest humanly dug hole in Great Britain. Well, when you're going to make such a dramatic change to the landscape, the government has to change the maps. And before they do that, they investigate whether this is a change which should be made. So an investigator, a recorder, was sent from uh, London to come to Harris and to take evidence from those who were opposed and those who were in favour. Of course, the mining company and said how many jobs could be possibly made with this great uh, change to the local culture and how people would come and money would flow in and tourists would arrive. The, the, the small island would thrive. And people who lived there were wooed by that to some extent, particularly those who had bread and breakfast or hotels or shops and people who feared for losing young folk if there was no work for them on the island. And then some people said, well, you know, this is an island, we have a different culture. We have single track roads. If you're going to have machinery that will move a mountain, we'll have to have three or four lined highways. And if they're going to cart away stone to the continent of Europe, the shallow harbour will be insufficient. It'll need to be dug deeper for big-bellied boats. And then two people came to speak who looked very different from each other because one was in the tribal headdress of a First Nations chief. His name was Stone Eagle, and he came from the Mi'kmaq tribe. And he said how in his ancestral lands there had been a mountain which had been felled and he did not believe or did not think he could face his grandchildren if anywhere else in God's creation a mountain was taken away and he did not register his objection. But behind him came a very slender man in his 60s who was a native of Harris. His name is Donald MacLeod. He speaks Gaelic as his first language and he is a free Presbyterian theologian. And with magnificent and brief eloquence, he began to let people know what the Bible says about creation. God as creator has absolute sovereignty over the environment. We must use it only in accordance with his will and we shall answer collectively as well as individually for, for all our decisions in this area. 
Theologically, the primary function of creation is to serve as a revelation of God. That's what creation does. That's why the Celts in Scotland called it the big book, not despising the small book, which was the Bible. But creation serves as a revelation of the glory of God. To spoil creation is to disable it from performing this function. He goes on to say that when people attack the earth with what is, to some extent, a rape, that rape of the earth can be rape of the community itself. And Stone Eagle knew this both from the tar sands around uh, Alberta in Canada, as well as the destruction of his own people's livelihood when the mountain was taken down. And Donald also said that when we read Genesis, we think that man has dominion over the ground. But he says the word which is used in Hebrew also means that man is the servant of the ground. It's a very different relationship. And it calls people in my country and it calls people in your country to realize that when we are dealing with the earth, we are dealing with a forum of praise to Almighty God. And any of our decisions and actions with regard to the earth will either enhance that praise or might diminish it. And we, according to the Bible, not according to any political party, we have to answer to God for our decisions in this area. I discovered just before I left Scotland, in a book of prayers which, was, which were collected by a civil servant in the 19th century, he'd gone round the islands of Scotland knowing that Gaelic, the language there, was under threat and knowing that wisdom and spiritual insight would be lost. He went around the islands collecting prayers and sometimes he would leave in his notebook a little indication of where the prayers came from or something about the community. And he writes something which last week I read to a man called Greg, uh, no, what was his name? Greg Lochry, who is an Anglican priest and an Aboriginal Australian. And he, uh, in, from his culture, was totally consonant with what the scholar in Scotland had found. He said, I have known men and women of 80, 90, and 100 continue the practice of their lives and going one or two miles to the seashore to join their voices with the waves and their praises with the praises of the ceaseless sea. For people of faith, ecology is not being trendy, new agey, weirdy, beardy. For people of faith, ecology is doxology. The care of the earth is a means by which it remains the right to praise its maker. Amen.